There are more art collectors now than ever before, and those collectors are wealthier than they've ever been. The global art market, which includes galleries, fairs, and auctions, saw $67.4 billion in sales in 2018. With the amount of money involved in the business of art, it's no surprise the industry attracts its share of crime. In fact, according to the U.S. Department of Justice, it's the third highest grossing criminal trade over the past 40 years, just behind drugs and weapons. My guest today is no stranger to the world of art crime. His name is Robert Whitman. He's the founder of the FBI's Art Crime Division and spent 13 years as an undercover FBI agent traveling the world to hunt down the most famous stolen artwork ever. He's the author of the books Priceless and The Devil's Diary. He's going to talk to us about how undercover operations work and his incredible career hunting down stolen art. He's a living legend, so let's get right to it. My name is Robert Whitman. I'm a retired special agent for the FBI. I was the uh, uh, founder and first senior investigator of the FBI's National Art Crime Team. Uh, over the course of my career there, I recovered more than $300 million worth of stolen art and cultural property. Uh, worked in 22 different countries. Uh, Recovering the stolen art, being involved in uh, in uh, catching fraudsters and people, in, uh, individuals who were involved in frauds, forgeries, and fakes. It goes without saying, the FBI is a dangerous job. In 2019, 89 officers were killed in the line of duty. The danger to undercover agents is even greater because when they find out their cover's blown, it's already too late. Only a specialized few remain in undercover missions, and they go through continual training. So I want to know, how do you prepare for an undercover operation? It depends. I mean, you know, uh, I know a lot of uh, undercover agents in the FBI. Uh, and when I say that, you have to understand, it's probably, oh gee, I would think there's probably maybe 20 or 25 agents who are undercover all the time. Those are professional undercover agents. A lot of agents uh, might do one case, and then that's it. And, and specifically, there's a rule in the FBI that you're only allowed to be involved in one undercover operation at a time. And uh, you can't work more than one case. So, uh, But there are maybe a professional group of 20, 25 uh, individuals, men and women, who are uh, doing who do undercover work uh, all around the country, a lot, uh, you know, very often. Uh, and, and they all were into different types of uh, investigations. So, you know, if you're going to you know, in, infiltrate a biker gang, you know, you would be a biker. That's how you would act. That's how you'd look. You'd, you'd grow your hair long. You'd get the, uh, the, the typical beard. You know, you'd drive the, wear the leathers and all that sort of thing and ride a, a motorcycle. So you would be that. I mean, if you're going to infiltrate a, uh, you know, an urban um, African-American or, or when I say that, what I mean is like an urban drug gang, uh, if you're selling on the street, and at that time there was like a lot of crack situations going on, people buying and selling crack, uh, you might dress in that sort of manner. Uh, but because I was an art, art theft investigator, my, it was my specialty, um, basically I didn't have to change too much. I mean, I was basically in the business of selling and buying art, whether it was stolen, fraudulent, or uh, fake. And, uh, you know, I always look pretty much the same. Informants are often used to infiltrate criminal enterprises. 
and they can make a lot of money working for the Bureau. According to the FBI's Confidential Human Source Policy Guide, a special agent in charge has the authority to pay each of his office's informants up to $100,000 per year. In addition to that, an informant may be eligible for up to 25% of the net value of any property forfeited as a result of the investigation. Most situations um, are going to open up with either an informant or a, a, a meeting. Um, there's two ways that undercover operatives you know, start, a, start a meeting, start, a, start a, a case. One is called through the bump, and that's when you bump into the subject. In other words, that's a real tough way to do it. But you, you monitor a subject, you find out where they go, you see where they, where they hang out, that type of thing. You just start being there. And uh, eventually, you, at some point, you start a conversation and you develop um, uh, that, that, that subject into a, uh, you know, a friend, a target. And then at that point, you, know, you infiltrate and you what we call befriend and betray. Uh, the other way is through an informant. It's, that's just what we call a vouch. So it's a bump and a vouch. The vouch is where somebody vouches for you, uh, says that you're, uh, you know, the person that they want to see, the, the person with the money, and uh, then you work your way in that way. That's a lot easier. But that's the two ways where uh, undercover operatives are able to uh, infiltrate groups. It's 100% within the law for the FBI to create fake scenarios to make suspects believe they're going to profit off a crime, when in reality they're just producing incriminating evidence. This strategy isn't considered entrapment because it's still the criminal's idea to engage in the illegal act. It's known as a pretext. Pretexts are lies, false statements, or ploys to mislead suspects or even witnesses. And like you're about to hear from Robert, these fake scenarios are often quite elaborate. Well, in that particular case, uh, we were trying to recover paintings that were stolen from a museum in Boston, Museum of the Gardner Museum. Uh, just by way of background, that museum was robbed in 1990. Uh, 13 objects of art were taken on March the 18th. Uh, it was uh, basically St. Patrick's Day morning in, uh, in Boston. And two individuals dressed as Boston police officers basically tricked the two guards that were there to let them in. And then they tied them up and went around the museum for 81 minutes and stole $300 million worth of art. Since then, that's, that art has never been recovered. It's been 30 years. Two of the pieces, one was a Vermeer, known as the Concert. It's the only Vermeer missing in the world. And the other piece was a Rembrandt seascape, known as the Storm of the Sea of Galilee. It's the only seascape Rembrandt ever did. And so those pieces are priceless. Uh, but total value on the heist was $300 million today because none of those pieces have been recovered. They're worth $500 million. So we were uh, doing an undercover operation in Miami, which ended up in, in Barcelona, Spain, Paris, and also in Mar in Marseille, uh, to try to get the Vermeer and Rembrandt back. Uh, we had developed information through an, uh, uh, another criminal that uh, these pieces were being offered for sale. And uh, so in order to, uh, to uh, you know, in, uh, infiltrate the group <clears throat> to make them believe who we were, we did a fake uh, uh, stolen art sale on a yacht in Miami Harbor. So I finally got to get on that cigarette boat, you know, the one I wanted to be in in 1988. <laughs> I finally, got, finally made it there 20 years later. And uh, we had a number of agents on the boat. Everybody on the boat was an FBI agent except for the bad guy. 
and uh, the, he thought we were selling uh, stolen art to a number of uh, to a drug dealer from uh, Colombia, and and it was uh, he was giving the art to his old girlfriend for a birthday, so uh, he uh, we had him help us mule the, <clears throat> mule the art onto the boat, you know, and uh, sell it to the guy and uh, kind of have a little champagne party while we were at it, uh, so it worked out well. He he believed the story, and he uh, at that point he was in whole hog. Going undercover carries the high risk of discovery by criminal suspects, and an agent has no room for error when it comes to gaining the confidence over their targets. Not only do they have to be believable, but they also have to build the trust for someone to reveal information that will put them in jail. Flawlessly pull off the character the agent is playing, there are specific rules to follow. of undercover operations or undercover work is always keep your, first, your your actual first name. Like, you know, my name is Robert. I call myself Bob. So any undercover names I would use, Bob Clay, Bob Johnson, Bob Smith, it'd always be Bob. And the point for that is that if somebody sees you who knows you, they're going to say what? They're going to say, hi, Mike, or they're going to say, hi, Bob, whatever it happens to be. Now, they probably won't say, hi, Michael Pugh, how are you? You know, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be, hi, Michael. And uh, as a result, you know, if your name is supposed to be Michael, or supposed to be Bob, you don't blow your cover. You want to keep everything as close to truth as you can. I mean, because you see, it's not like a movie where you have 10 takes to get a scene right. You only have one shot, okay? And you don't want to mess that scene up in one shot. So basically, if you're going to go undercover, you're going to work a case, you might be working that case for two or three years, literally. And for two or three years, those people might think you're somebody else. So... How are you going to remember what you said the first year, you know, when you're into the second or third? And they know. They know and they're listening. And you say something different than what you told them before, it's, it's a problem. So you try to keep things as close to the truth as possible. Uh, I was, that was my rule. My other rule was never, I'm never the tough guy. <laughs> I'm not that guy. You know, I, I don't want to, uh, you don't want to put people on the defense. Uh, you want them to be always, quote, think they have the upper hand. And have they let them think it's their idea for whatever you're doing? Because then they, they go along. Uh, if you try to be the tough guy and try to force things, it doesn't work that way. Then then they get their back up, and next thing you know, you're in a fight with them. And that's not what you want. You want them to willingly work with you to uh, to create a deal, which will be which will be which will give evidence that they're they're involved in criminal activity. Art heists have always made international news. In 1911, when the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre, it changed how people viewed the painting. Prior to it being stolen, it wasn't even that famous. It was so little known that when the story was first broke by the Washington Post in the US, they printed the wrong picture. It was missing for two years, and during that time, its recognition and value skyrocketed. Da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa in 1507, but it wasn't until it was stolen 400 years later that critics began to see the work as the pinnacle of Renaissance painting. Hollywood often glamorizes art heists, and it makes sense, because when high-profile paintings get stolen, some seem like they're right out of a movie script. This case involved a Rembrandt self-portrait. It was done in 1620 when Rembrandt was 27 years old. Uh, and uh, what happened was the three individuals went into the Swedish National Museum in Stockholm, and it was at 5 o'clock on December 23rd with dark and cold, and these three guys went in, they had machine guns, 
and they put uh, everybody on the floor. And as he did that, one guy was standing guard. The other two individuals uh, ran, throughout, ran throughout the museum. And they stole three artworks. Two were, uh, one was a Rembrandt and self-portrait valued at $35 million. And the other two pieces were Renoirs, uh, valued at about $4 million and $3 million, respectively. So the total heist was about $42 million. The way they made their getaway, uh, because the museum is on a peninsula, right on the water in Stockholm. The way they made their getaway was they set up car strips uh, to stop any cars from uh, you know, responding and also set off two car bombs in the city of Stockholm that night. And as they did that, they stopped the two main roads so that the police and the fire department could not respond. It took them over 20 minutes to get there. But meanwhile, of course, they couldn't leave that way. So what they did was they had hidden the boat right there at the end of the peninsula. And they made their way, uh, their getaway in a high-speed boat up in the harbor. So it was a pretty good heist. You know, they had car bombs, they had machine guns, they had tax strips to stop the cars, and then made their own getaway in a high-speed boat. Pretty, uh, pretty well done as far as the uh, planning on that uh, on that heist. Forty-two million. That was the largest uh, art theft in Swedish history, Swedish national history. So um, it was a mistake, though. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when these things happen, if they do it correctly and there's no leads. That's hard to solve. But once in a while, they make a mistake, and that's usually the situation. In this case, uh, when they made their mistake, they, they had bought that boat a couple of days before, and they used a credit card, Mike, <laughs> which is not a good idea, right, when you're going to be out using a, a piece like that in a criminal activity. So, of course, the boat was found the next morning, and uh, they were able to trace the numbers on the boat back to the original owner, who said, yeah, I sold it a few days ago. Here's the credit card number. And, of course, by that point, the Swedish police had, had the uh, phone numbers, they had the addresses of where the credit card came from, and they were able to, to start their investigation on these individuals. Uh, within one year, they did recover one of the paintings, it was a Renoir, and they arrested 10 people uh, that were involved. They were all co-conspirators, and uh, they, they were able to convict seven of the 10 uh, who got 10-year sentences and uh, recovered one of the paintings. Well, fast forward for four or five years, and uh, what we did, what happened then was we had the National Art Crime Team, and we got a lead in Los Angeles about the second Renoir. Remember, there was two Renoirs and a Rembrandt. The second Renoir showed up in Los Angeles. So as part of a drug operation, we were able to uh, identify that second Renoir and recover that. And uh, the person who had it was uh, uh, looking to try to help himself. So he said that, uh, well, since, he, since we had that back and he needed help, he would help us get the Rembrandt. So as it turned out, he knew who the individuals were who had the Rembrandt. They were still in Stockholm, Sweden. And we started an undercover operation in Stockholm. So uh, we ended up going to Sweden. We did this Operation Bullwinkle, which was the undercover operation, to meet with the thieves to get the peace back. Ultimately, we couldn't do it in Stockholm because of uh, certain uh, laws in that country. So we went to Copenhagen, Denmark, and that's where we set up the, uh, the undercover operation. In this case, I was acting as a uh, authenticator or and buyer for the Russian mob out of Germany, and so we uh, we, we made a deal to buy the piece from uh, these individuals for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Remember, the painting was worth thirty five million. That was the, the value. So uh, after a number of weeks of negotiations, we finally convinced them to come down, and ultimately we were able to uh, arrest them and recover the painting. 4 a.m. November 25th, 2019, Dresden, Germany. 
Thieves set fire to a power box, disabling surrounding streetlights, cameras, and the security system at the famed Green Vault Museum. Two men then scaled the side of the building to the second floor, where they were able to cut out a hole accessing the museum's jewelry room, at which point they stole jewelry sets containing diamonds, pearls, and rubies dating back to the late 1700s that once belonged to Saxony's 18th century ruler Augustus the Strong. Using a turbocharged Audi RS6 and taking advantage of the close proximity to the Autobahn, the burglars were able to evade police who arrived just five minutes after the robbery. The 10 treasures missing from the green vault are said to be valued at as much as 1 billion euro, which now makes it Europe's largest art heist in history. I asked Robert how he would go about solving this case. That was an interesting case because they, I think they've got leads on who actually did it. Um, they, they do have, I think that's, uh, that somebody broke in. I mean, they actually do have a lead on who did that. How would I get it back? Well, I would do a forensic investigation, just like uh, like they're doing. I mean, you have to look at what they use, what kind of tools, uh, what kind of uh, uh, whether there any footprints on the floors, whether uh, how they made their ingress, how they got into the museum, uh, what they used to open the cases, uh, how they got out of the museum, and how they made their getaway. You would do a forensic investigation as far as all the surveillance cameras in the area. You know, in today's world, there's every every inch of the world is on camera. You know that, right? <laughs> if you anywhere you go in LA or New York or Philadelphia, you're going to be on camera. And so at some point, I would look at all the camera footage from all around the area, maybe two blocks away, a three block radius, you know, um, to see what kind of um, what we could find as far as identification. Uh, all that would be part of it. And then I would look into like where this material would go and who would be interested in buying it. Uh, and that's that's a specific type of uh, knowledge that you have to have as a, as an expert. Um, the other stuff I'm telling you, any police officer can do, but having the, the background knowledge on where the material ends up is something that has have, that a person has to have with expertise. Um, I would look at all that. I mean, and I'd set up a, um, you know, a situation where I'd have a group, different groups of people out doing those investigations and bring everything back and putting it into, into a, into a, uh, intelligence file that we could then look at and see, you know, what, what we're looking to find. Uh, but it's a case of each lead will bring another lead, which leads to another lead. And at some point, you break the case. I really loved my conversation with Robert. He has so many amazing stories. Read his books, Priceless and The Devil's Diary. You can get them on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. Go to his website, Robert Whitman, Inc. And until next time, I've been Michael Q. And now I'm going to find something new to learn. Mm-hmm.